once the cups are collected, we'll just wait until the cups are being collected and then the kids can head out to their activities, children's church and creche. All right, kids. Thanks so much for being part of our service this morning. We really appreciate it. moment as we pray, as we come before God this morning, as we prepare our hearts to open his word, what he might say to us. Uh, Father, we just thank you this morning for what a great time of worship and celebration we've enjoyed. Lord, we want to thank you so much for our kids, uh, for blessing this church with so many children and families. We want to pray a special prayer of blessing over Lisa, over her team. We thank you, Lord, for their diligence and their commitment to love and to serve our children, to see their faith grow. Father, I pray for the parents in this church that you might equip us um, to be the primary ones who imitate and share your love with our children and that we as a church would partner with parents and families uh, in that process. Lord, thank you so much that you are a God of all generations, that you are a God of all people. And uh, you are here very much among us, ministering by your Spirit to each of our hearts um, where we are at. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for uh, his demonstration of what you are like um, in flesh. But we thank you for the recorded word, the gospel, uh, the Bible, that takes us into your heart, helps us understand who you are, and your desire for all men and women, boys and girls, to come into relationship with you. And so this morning, Lord, as we open up Genesis chapter 41, we ask that your Spirit would come and speak to us and open up new meanings and understandings of your Word, that we may know you more, that we may love you more, that we may more faithfully and diligently follow you and share you with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At some stage in each of our lives, uh, we have most likely experienced what is called a turning point. Perhaps it was when you met your spouse for the very first time. Perhaps it was the decision to study which led you to a particular career, which led you to a move. Uh, and the whole trajectory of your life changed because of this turning point decision. Perhaps it was having a child Maybe it was a near-death experience. Whatever it was, you look back on that moment and in hindsight can see the chain reaction of events that led your life down a completely new path. Today we reach a major turning point in the story of Joseph. His teenage dream of chapter 37 finally begins to find fulfilment and his life takes a serious turn from one set of circumstances to a completely new reality. 
Last week we left off in chapter 40 with the interpretation of the chief cupbearer and chief baker's dreams coming true. In spite of the cupbearer's promise to remember Joseph, verse 23 informs us that he forgot about him. Now two years passed between chapters 40 and chapter 41. It's easy to skim over detail like that when you're reading the Bible. But when you actually stop and think about it, two years is a long time in someone's life. Here is yet again an opportunity for Joseph to grow cold and bitter towards God. I can't help but wonder if Joseph had felt as though God had forgotten him, as though God had abandoned him. He certainly had plenty of reasons to do so. You know, it's one thing to remain faithful and God-centred when things are going well. But when life is in the pit, that is where our true test of character really comes to the fore. Well, the cupbearer may have forgotten about Joseph, but God certainly didn't, as we will soon see. Whilst the text offers no insight into that period of Joseph's life, the thing to note is that Joseph's trust in God's sovereignty appears to remain untainted, unfazed. In chapter 41, it is now Pharaoh who is having strange dreams that require interpretation. After the Egyptian magicians fail to offer any useful interpretation, The chief cupbearer recalls Joseph from his time in prison and how accurate his interpretation of dreams was. Pharaoh calls for Joseph and shares with him his dream about the seven fat cows followed by seven sleek cows eating the fat cows as well as the seven heads of grain being swallowed up by seven thin heads of grain. Joseph, no doubt feeling thankful for the shave and shower that was required for him to take before standing in front of Pharaoh, explains that the dream means one and the same thing. Egypt will experience seven years of abundant crops, followed by seven years of severe famine. The dual nature of the dream, as we have come to learn, uh, is a guarantee that this will indeed come to pass. At every point in the conversation that Joseph has with Pharaoh, he is quick to credit God as being the one who interprets dreams, not himself. And this obviously leads a very strong impression upon Pharaoh because in verse 39, Pharaoh says to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one, there is no one as discerning and as wise as you. Pharaoh a figure to have understood to have descended from the gods, and in his culture, a godlike figure himself, is now acknowledging the true one God of Israel. And this is where we pick up today in verse 41 of chapter 41. Joseph in charge of Egypt. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. 
He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphnath-Paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and travelled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. After years of imprisonment, Joseph goes from being a total nobody to second in charge of Egypt. Uh, talk about a promotion of epic proportions. Can you imagine Joseph's shock and surprise? There is no way he could have seen this coming. I'm sure Joseph would have been more than happy just to be released from prison, let alone be made prime minister. Perhaps only in his wildest teenage dreams could he have imagined such an occurrence transpiring. Pharaoh then sets about Egyptianizing Joseph. He begins by placing his own signet ring on Joseph's finger. This was like his signature. Joseph is now good to sign off on any documents in Pharaoh's name. Pharaoh unreservedly trusts Joseph with his life and with his Egyptian empire. Next, he is dressed in royal attire, fine linen robes. The gold chain placed around his neck is a symbol of this ceremonial inauguration. And from now on, as Joseph travels around a second in command, people are ordered to bow down, to make way for him, for this all-important figure. He receives a new name, zaphnath Paneah, which some suggest mean God speaks and lives. 
He is also given a noble Egyptian wife. Notice that twice the writer informs us of the wife's family heritage. She is the daughter of an Egyptian priest. She is a significant figure, and Joseph is given her as his wife. After this miraculous promotion from prisoner to prime minister, Joseph, 30 years of age at this stage in the story, gets to work um, acting out what he described to Pharaoh would need to happen in order for Egypt to avoid um, the seven years of famine, the, you know, the impending effects of that. Joseph gets to work and seven fruitful years follow, exactly as the dream had predicted. During these years of fruitfulness and abundance, Joseph and his wife have two sons. The first, Manasseh, meaning making to forget. The second, Ephraim, meaning twice fruitful. What's interesting to note here is that both of these boys receive Hebrew names. Externally, Joseph has undergone a complete makeover. He has a completely new identity, a new name, a new look, a new way of life. He would have looked like a completely different man. In fact, in the coming weeks, we will see that he was unrecognisable to his brothers. And yet, whilst Joseph had been transformed externally, what we see is that his heart still remained uh, facing towards Yahweh, that he had not stopped pursuing and serving his God. The fact that he chose Hebrew names for his boys indicates that Joseph had not left or forgotten his roots, that he knew that God was indeed faithful, that God was indeed sovereign, and that God was indeed in control of this entire saga of his life. By verse 57, we are told that all the world came to buy grain, not from Pharaoh, but from Joseph. And so that promise that God made to Abraham in chapter 12 about blessing all nations through this one family is finding fulfillment in Genesis 41, 57 with the entire known world coming to receive grain which was used to make bread for the whole world. What can we learn from Genesis chapter 41? Throughout every trial that Joseph endured, he remained faithful to God. There were countless opportunities and endless reasons for him to give in or give up. But he kept believing that God had a plan and that God's plan would prevail. That God's plan would succeed. That faithfulness was rewarded. Sure, as second in charge to Pharaoh, Joseph would have enjoyed wonderful prosperity and success. But without question, the greatest reward and the greatest blessing that Joseph received was to be used as a tool, was to be used as a vessel who would bring deliverance of many, many people from starvation and death. God used Joseph as part of his grand salvation 
narrative. And here we are today talking about this man because of his faithfulness to God. God saw in Joseph a man he could trust, a man whose faith was not easily shaken. God continues to look for men and women in whom he can trust. He continues to look for men and women whose faith will not be easily shaken. Men and women he can use to bring his kingdom to bear here on earth. Friends, men and women like you and I. Joseph is a great encouragement for us to remain faithful to God through the uncertain terrain of life. When we feel betrayed, the voice of Joseph echoes from these pages, hold on. When we find ourselves in new and somewhat unsettling circumstances, the voice of Joseph echoes, hold on. When we feel abandoned, the voice of Joseph cries out, hold on. When we feel forgotten, Joseph cautions, hold on, God's going to come through. When we feel forgotten, uh, when we feel shocked or surprised, Joseph says resolutely, hold on, hold on. Stand your ground. Remain faithful to God because he is faithful and entirely trustworthy and his word never, ever fails. At a surface level, we can read Genesis 41 and see all that Pharaoh did to lift Joseph up into a position of power and influence. But just scratch a little deeper and we begin to see that in fact, this is all God's plan. It's all God's doing. God gave Pharaoh the dreams. God brought Joseph to Pharaoh's attention. God gave Joseph the wisdom and the discernment to be able to interpret dreams. When we look at the pages of Scripture, it may be easy for us to see Joseph as Pharaoh's man. But Joseph is, in fact, God's man. Uh, Joseph is not Pharaoh's instrument for economic survival. (laughs) Joseph is God's tool for the salvation of many people. It was God that gave Joseph success. In the end, as I said, Joseph is not Pharaoh's man, he is God's man. To the common Israelite who heard this story, the power of God is very clearly being contrasted with the power of Pharaoh, or I should say the failing weakness of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the God. He was the guy. He was the one who had all power, who had all authority, who had all sovereignty in the land of Egypt. And what the writer of Genesis is doing is showing us Who's really in charge here? It sure ain't Pharaoh. It's Yahweh. And he's the one in whom you need to place your trust. He is the one who will bring all things together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. The text unashamedly beckons the reader to place their trust 
in Yahweh. In many different ways, Joseph reminds us of Jesus. He is a shadow figure of Christ, and there are several points of connection. Joseph was 30 years old when his great work began. All his life and all his experiences up to this point were preparatory. God knew exactly when Joseph would be capable of withstanding each and every passing test. And he allowed those tests to come into Joseph's life to refine and grow and develop his character. God grew Joseph through those circumstances to become the kind of godly, faithful, resilient leader that he needed to bring about his salvation for many people. Jesus' public ministry also began at age 30. And whilst the scriptures don't really record any details from the birth of Christ to when he begins his public ministry at 30, what I love is that what we have here is an incredible affirmation of 30 years of everyday average life, of just working with my hands, of being in a family environment, of being part of a community and serving. The majority of Jesus' life was spent here. We only have this part recorded, and that's really what we need to know to follow Christ and to accept and believe Him as Saviour and God. But surely, surely, what God was doing during this important season of Jesus' life was preparing him, readying him for this. It didn't just happen. You know, Jesus was incredible with people. He listened. He loved. He served. And where did he learn to do some of those things? Right here, my friends, where you and I live, in our homes with our husbands and wives, in our workplaces, with our employees that we struggle with, with our colleagues that we rub shoulders with, with our neighbours. All of these opportunities for our character to grow. You know, so often we want to be here in the spotlight, kind of doing that awesome thing for God. But God actually wants us here, learning to be selfless in our homes, in our workplaces, in our thoughts, on our laptops. This is where character development is formed and forged and shaped for great work for God. We only ever get here if we put in here. Joseph's a great example of putting in here. Let me ask you, what is God preparing you for? What is going to be your great ministry? Uh, What has God prepared you for? Maybe you're at the cusp 
Maybe you're at the cusp. I think so many people never get here because they just want to be there and they never actually just ground themselves in the everyday, ordinary. I think Joseph prefigures, foreshadows Christ in ways that we will never know. You know, the Scriptures don't tell us about this, but it's there. Everyday life, so important for our character development. If you're married, your greatest ministry is to be Jesus to your husband and wife. If you have children, your next most important significant ministry is to be Jesus to your children. And all of us have, we all as God's people have a responsibility to serve both in the local church, the gathered body of believers, and in the local community. And how we are living that out will ultimately determine the fruitfulness of our lives. Learn to follow Christ in your home. Have integrity. Honestly, what is an hour and a half on a Sunday morning? We come to church and we put on our fine clothes and we have nice conversations, but the reality is really not what happens in this building, my friends. It's not what happens in this building that makes us Christians. Absolutely not. It's what happens out there. It's what happens in our homes. It's what happens behind our computer screens. It's what happens in private so often that is actually the measure of our faith. God uses that to prepare us for that which He has in store for us. Who will He find faithful to be able to use for His glory? He found Joseph. And Joseph, like Jesus, was God's prophet. Jesus brought God's word to people. Joseph brought God's word to Pharaoh. There are all kinds of illustrations and similarities between the person of Jesus and Joseph. Joseph was exalted. He was lifted high. He was seated at the right hand of Pharaoh to rule over the Egyptian empire. Jesus was lifted high. He was raised. He was seated at the right hand of the Father as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. In this story, Joseph becomes the saviour of the known world. People are not going to Pharaoh to purchase grain. They're going to Joseph, God's representative. Joseph provided grain for bread, saving many people from death. Jesus, who referred to himself in John 6.35 as the bread of life, saved and continues to save many people who put their trust in him. Finally, the story of Joseph rightly leads us to Christ, true saviour of the world. But Joseph not only reminds us of Christ, His story reminds us of our story in Christ, does it not? We too were once stuck in a pit of our sin and shame. We were destined for eternal death. We had no way of rescuing ourselves. That was until God had mercy upon us and called us to himself. In his death and resurrection, Christ became our rescuer. 
He pulled us out of the pit and liberated us from our sin and our past. He pulled us from that place of destruction and despair and adopted us into God's family. God's grace, shown to us through Christ, is truly extravagant. The word prodigal means excessive, extravagant, unsparing, reckless. And we are familiar with the term from the story of the prodigal son, where we see the father being reckless, extravagant, unsparing and excessive in his love towards his repentant son. Our God, as Timothy Keller has coined, is the prodigal God. His love and his grace and his compassion and his mercy and his forgiveness is extravagant. It is reckless. It is excessive. Just as the prodigal son was totally undeserving to be fully restored as a son, receiving a ring on his finger, a robe on his back, and a party to celebrate his return, so too we are entirely undeserving of receiving the status as sons and daughters of God, as co-heirs of Christ. All who place their trust in Jesus have experienced the greatest and most significant turning point that could ever have happened in our lives. Like Joseph, our destiny went from pit to palace, from condemnation and judgment to freedom and liberty and grace. Thanks be to God for his extravagant love. Where are you this morning? Have you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ? Have you allowed him to take you from the pit into the palace of eternity? The invitation, my friends, is there for you. Follow me. Follow me and I will liberate you from the bondage and the chaos and the disorder of life in the pit. And in my son, Jesus, I will adopt you into my family and take you into the eternal palace of life everlasting with me. Thanks be to God for his extravagant love and his extravagant grace shown to all. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for what an inspiration Joseph is to us. But more importantly, Lord, we read this text and we see your hand at work. And we know that the actual point is not to, to raise up and to highlight Joseph, but in fact to raise up and to highlight you, God, as the one who is always in control, working things out for your glory and for your kingdom to bear on earth. Lord, we've spoken about a number of things this morning.
And I believe that your Holy Spirit has come and uh, taken me by surprise, in fact, by talking to us about character in the ordinary, everyday life. Lord, clearly you have a, a word there for your people this morning, myself included, and I pray that we would heed that word. Father, for some of us, perhaps, you've been preparing us for a, a long time for something that we're uh, bordering on, but we are too full of fear or caution to step into what it is that you have prepared us for. And I pray for those folk here this morning that you would prompt them and guide them and lead them by your Holy Spirit. Show them what it is that you've prepared them for. Help them to live that out, to realise that destiny, Lord, that you have created them for. Father, some of us this morning find ourselves, metaphorically speaking, in the pit of our, our sin, of our shame, of our guilt, of our past, and we don't have a saviour. We haven't placed our trust in Christ as saviour and Lord. And we're wondering if now is the time. And so I want to pray again for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to come and just gently lead and guide those people you know them by name and transform them into your kingdom, a kingdom of life, of liberation, of grace, of freedom, of joy. Holy Spirit, come and move amongst your people this morning. Lift up the great name of Jesus and may this church be a church that knows and shares that life-changing message of Jesus that many people will come to know you. And Lord, may you use us, your people, men and women, individuals, Erina Community Baptist Church here on the Central Coast, to be a tool to be a part of your grand salvation narrative that continues to play to this very day. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for Jesus. Amen. This final song that we're going to sing is just a wonderful opportunity for us to respond. If you want to respond in your heart to God, well, this song is a song of declaration in what we believe. It's based on the Apostles' Prayer, and it's kind of the essence of what it is to be a Christ follower. These are the things that Christ followers believe in and, and, and stake their lives on.